Welcome to Money in the Mind. Join Andy, a mental health therapist, and Aaron, an accountant, as they explore personal finance, psychology, and provide resources to help on your financial journey. Hello, and welcome to episode 23 of Money in the Mind. I am Aaron, joined by Andy, and we have a guest today, Peyton Hogan. Thank you for joining us, Andy. This is another one of your good friends in the mental health field. So I will let you guys just take it away with what we're talking about today and introducing yourselves. Absolutely. So like Ron said, we have Peyton Hogan here. He is a mental health therapist. I went to school with him for a number of years. Good friend of mine. And so Peyton, why don't we just hop right into it? Tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, whatever you want to let us know. Definitely, definitely. So um, yeah, like they said, my name's Peyton Hogan. Went to school with my buddy Andrew for, for about three years in our graduate program. Um, got our master's in clinical mental health. I currently work over at Charles Drew Health Center um, as a behavioral health therapist, and I see a, a wide range of clients from married couples to kids that are on probation and in the HHS system to just your average day person who's dealing with the stress of these COVID times. So yeah, you know, that's pretty much it. Cool. So today we want to focus on primarily mental health and personal finance as it's as it's viewed in in the black community. Now, obviously Peyton is is but one incredible individual, but he uh Peyton, you've I know throughout our schooling you've you've done so much to invest a lot of time and effort into your community. And so why don't you why don't you just tell us a little bit about uh, the work that you've done within your community and what you want to continue doing as well. For sure. The whole time that I was in school for my uh, for my graduate degree, I was actually um, running a program over at Central Park Elementary through an organization called Dream. Um, I directed their after school program. And what that entailed, it was pretty much just community organization. So I led a lot of community service events from neighborhood cleanups to neighborhood breakfast parties, like bringing in DJs, just just trying to get the neighborhood involved and together um, and under one roof, you know, besides church time, you know, a time where people can actually just commune and break bread together um, and enjoy each other's company. A huge component of that and being around those kids and something that I really enjoy and miss doing. And it's definitely been a pause on because of COVID is going into those classrooms and reading to those kids. I would try to do that at least once a week. Um, and it wasn't limited to just Central Park. Like I went to some schools over in Bellevue, other OPS schools. There's this there's this private school named Nelson Mandela here in Omaha that I also would go to and read. So um, really just trying to engage our youth and engage their parents. You know, that was that was my big emphasis. So what, you know, outside of the obvious answer, what makes community so important other than the fact that at least in in my opinion, community is becoming less and less and less and the, and the focus is more on the individual and what can I do to gain and what can I do? So in, in your opinion, what makes it so important for community and what made you want to invest all this time and effort into what you were doing? Well, you know, just being a black man, you know, and a lot of the narratives that are painted about us, you know, at times, like we tend to look at each other as, you know, not enemies, but just as strangers. And I didn't like that. I grew up in a I grew up in a family where we have big family gatherings for holidays. Everybody's loving each other. Every it's just like this, it's this feeling. And so like when I when I look at people who are in my community, like it like I want to see them as family too. And I want us to be able to like I said, I want us to be able to come together and break bread together. Like and it doesn't have to be like this huge religious spiritual thing, you know, like I want to see, I want you to be able to see me and I want to see you and I want us to be able to have a connection. And so that's why community is important to me, man. Like just making that connection with, with people who are, who are like. Mentioning your family and the community you grow, grew up with. What are some of the maybe financial beliefs or struggles that people had that you noticed? There's another question I have, but I'll say, I'll say, I'll save that one for later. Um, what kind of, yeah, what kind of beliefs did maybe you get growing up or did you see or were modeled for you um, from a financial perspective? Definitely. Um, man, living check to check, you know, that, that the whole concept of that and not really, not really putting a way to save, you know, if, if you have money, you're spending it. And, and something that I learned early on, 
something that I learned early on is that you you gain value in yourself by the material possessions that you have. You know, if you got clothes, you got shoes, you got jewelry, um, you got the fresh haircut with the fresh line every week, like then your your status, you know, with, from the people around you, from in your community, they look at you like, man, you you got it, you made it. But all the while you look at your bank account and you really don't have anything there until the next check hits. And then once that check hits, it's right back to spending. You could you could be somebody who who was living below the poverty line, but have a really nice car with some really big rims and some speakers in it. And everybody will look to you like you're a god. And that's something that, you know, in my community, a lot of people look up to. I, You know, I'm I'm not far from it. Like right now, I got a really nice car with some really big rims and also some really big tires, you know, because that's something that I always aspired for. Like I grew up on that. You know, you look at you look at the music videos um, and hip hop, like all throughout the ages. And it's like this lifestyle is. It's, it's put on a pedestal. And so that's something that that's taught. And so say when it comes to saving money and, you know, building up a, a financial legacy for the next generation, that's it's unheard of. You don't. Yeah. You don't see it very often. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. But you might. But having having that status, you know, that can that can be really valuable. I, I Tell me if I'm wrong, just from what I can tell, like having maybe some status, if you have the nice car, if people looked up, look up to you in the community, you know, you've got a good group, good group of friends and family around you. I can see how the financial security would be difficult, but in terms of like the emotional, you know, all the connections you have with people socially might have benefits too. If, I mean, I think everyone would, would want to be in a better financial position overall. Certainly it's not, it's not like, you can't have both at times, but I would imagine that kind of maybe some of that that community bonding might might be one of the the benefits of some of those the financial behaviors. Definitely, but it's 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 all a facade, though. You know what I'm coming to realize because, like, you can have all of that stuff, but as soon as something important comes up, where like let's say it's let's say there's a you know like a tragedy or a natural disaster you have no money to pay for those things. Like, let's say somebody dies and now now we're creating GoFundMes to, to hold a funeral because we don't have the money. We never took out, we never took out life insurance. Like life insurance is not something that is valued, you know, because what's life insurance? Why am I going to pay some money for some life insurance? Like, let me go, let me, let me get my fit right. Let me get my shoes right. Let me get my jewelry right. So it's, you know, it, it really is a facade on, on certain levels, but to, to speak to that and to speak to the status, it, you know, it goes back to, you know, the theory of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, when, when you're wanting to feel good, that's all you focus on is feeling good. And you don't get past, you know, those basic levels, those, those, that, that level of security. And it's just about, all right, how, how can I feel better than what my circumstances already are? And it's kind of clear with everything that's going on, what circumstances really are. I say let's let's keep going on that note like essentially with Maslow's with you know this facade that's got to take a toll on on one's mental health so in in your experience in in your community how how is mental health viewed like a joke and I mean you you really can't blame anybody because what's what's the mental health like you know what what's a what's a mental health going to do for you when when you really don't have any money when you you know, what's a mental health going to do for you when when you got homies that are getting killed? What's a mental health going to do when you're worried about getting killed and trying to survive? What's a mental health? You don't have time to think about mental health. That's, mental health, honestly, is almost a luxury. Like to be able to sit down and sit back and say, hmm, man, like, let me reflect on what's going on. Like that is a luxury to think that. And a lot of people take that take that for granted. You know, just being able to have the time and have the capacity to sit back and think. But that doesn't excuse that everybody actually does. But it's just like, you know, to be able to bring yourself to that state. It's almost like a meditative state that a lot of us don't don't acknowledge to say, like, you know, how is my how is how is my my thought process going? Hmm, I don't know. So how did you personally begin to be interested in 
mental health and how did you get along the path that led you to where you are? Well, I, I fortunately grew up in a, a middle-class home, middle-class home. My mom was a, a corporate attorney for first data. She worked her way up in the company. She started off entry level, um, was in law school when, when I was a baby, used to take me to her class. She actually took me to her bar exam and completed that. But what actually got me into the field of mental health is when I was in college, like a series of events happened to where I was facing a lot of criminal time, a lot of criminal time. Um, but I was fortunate enough to be offered an opportunity to do this thing called drug court. And through drug court, I had to like talk to a bunch of counselors, go to a bunch of different classes, a bunch of different like IOP groups, aftercare and all of this stuff. And so it forced me it forced me to learn about my own mental health. And through that process, I got offered an opportunity to work at a social work agency once I graduated the program two uh, two years later. And that just kind of started my track um, in the mental health field. Peyton, you had mentioned earlier how, you know, in the community, there's, you, you know, you're constantly living in fear. You're living in fear of, you know, your friends dying or even you dying. And you're always having to look over your back for those kind of things. Ron, before we started recording, you had mentioned a, a statistic cited in the Omaha World Herald. Do you want to you want to hit us with that one? Well, yeah, this is just a front page of the of the World Herald from a couple of weeks ago. How just evictions in Omaha, uh, most of them occur in in black and Hispanic neighborhoods in Omaha compared to the white parts of the city. And even some of the the neighborhoods that are over, you know, over 50 percent black or Hispanic. Turning my pages here. Pardon me. You know, like in a majority black community, household income is about thirty-two to thirty-three thousand dollars, and in white majority communities in Omaha, it's about seventy-one thousand dollars. So you've got higher higher rates of evictions, you've got lower incomes, and I I was just having a conversation just a couple of weeks ago with some family members and they they weren't really aware of some of the some of these disparities i don't know what my question is there well but it's it's clear it's clear there's a there's an issue like it's 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 right in front of our faces right and there are people that would say no this this stuff isn't happening right and well, and think to what sorry peyton but think to what peyton you said earlier you know with, with maslow's hierarchy of needs you're not going to get past security if you're constantly living in fear and I mean, if there's there's a this massive eviction rate, I mean, there's always that fear of like, I don't know where I'm going to sleep the next night or or are we going to make rent for, you know, this month or or what have you. So it's, it's I mean, it's it's real. It's 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 fearful. So yeah, sorry. What were you going to say? Well, I was, I was just going to pitch you guys a, a scenario and I, I wanted to hear what you what you thought. So let's say let's say just this is just hypothetical for now. Um, let's say you have a school and in your school, you have a lot of behavioral issues. So, you know, kids are kids are constantly being sent to the office. Grades are low. Parent engagement is very low. The average teacher to student ratio or student to teacher ratio is about 20 to one. And that's in that scenario. Would you increase the student to teacher ratio, add more students? per teacher or would you drop that oh you'd always want to try to get a lower yeah so what's actually happening in ops in north omaha is they're increasing the students per teacher specifically speaking of the school that i was working at and this has nothing to do with the school administration but this is the system as a whole they are cutting teachers cutting teachers from the schools to make for more money and then adding students to other classes. So I think one class got up to like 30 kids with one teacher. And then every kid is almost every kid is labeled a behavior. So how much learning is actually going on in the classroom? Who knows? And so then now you're sending these kids through, through school, not learning anything because they're constantly being sent out. They're constantly having IEPs labeled on them and all of these different things. And then the product is, you know, what you see today, you can't really blame these kids. You know what I mean? Like, right. They were set up, they're set up from the start to fail. Like they, they were never given an opportunity 
to have like true one-on-one time to actually learn. And then like the kids, like it's, it's sad. It, it was, it was sad being there. And this was part of the reason that I wanted to start reading to them each week. Like there would be kids in fifth grade who could not read to save their life. Like they couldn't read a Dr. Seuss book, man. A Dr. Seuss. They couldn't do addition. They couldn't well, do and subtraction. And half, half, the, half the words in a Dr. Seuss book are all made up anyway. And so, like, <laughs> man. Yeah. But it was bad. Like yeah. five plus five. It, it would take like it would take a while for them to even come up with an answer to something like that you know, some students and they're just being passed along, passed along, passed along, passed along, you know, so. Well, and, and Ron, you had a, you had another statistic about incarceration. We'd go back to that, that fear proponent or sorry, that fear component of, of what is it like to be a black man? What is uh what's that statistic you had? Yeah. One of our state senators, Megan Hunt, she said, um, black Nebraskans make up 5% of the state population. So I, I was wrong. I said Omaha, it's 5% oh, okay. of the state and 29% of the state prison population. So right there again, staring you right in the face. Like I, I like to kind of take the Occam's razor. What's the simplest explanation for something? Well, it's, it's not that there's something fundamentally like wrong with, people that aren't white it's it's that there's there's something wrong with you know just the the system and and the 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 bias inherent in people that you know drug charges and higher rates of incarceration and it's i don't know i i've been learning more a a lot about it of course with all that's happened this summer you know after george floyd was killed and and it's I'm I'm still learning. I'm still ignorant about a lot of things, but some of the stats like that, it's just like there's such an obvious problem and that has financial impacts. It's it's just every facet of people's lives are hindered and they have just so many more barriers than, you know, Andy and I grew up with. I was just going to say, when you look at the model for modern day prisons and how they're set up, um, it goes way back to like 1800, 1900. They're not called prison farms, but they're like they're like farm camps that were going on down south. That's what they're based off of. And so at these farm camps, they would have and this is after this is after slavery. They would have people who committed like crimes. I don't, I don't know if you guys ever seen the movie Life. This was with with Eddie Murphy and uh, Bernie. They got Bernie. Well, it's a good movie. You guys should check it out. Really funny. Got the Put boom, the boom, boom. Yeah, <laughs> it's real good. I will. <laughs> But um, they were they were working down on one of these one of these farms. And what they did is they, you know, they did, they you know, like the old breaking the rocks and doing all the, the hard manual labor. But that manual labor is making money for somebody. And that's what a lot of these prisons are based off of. They're based off of a labor system where these individuals come there. They're doing some type of job for I think it's a max of three dollars and twenty five cent per day. And there's a ROI for the individuals who run the prison and the states. And so now when you look into like a lot of these and people talk about it all the time, these corporations who are investing in these private prisons and all these different things, like they're getting a return on all of these products that are being made inside of these prisons. So it's, it's, it's a business, you know, it's a business model and they're exploiting a demographic who has been. Uh, oppressed and who has been pushed to the side for a while, primarily black, black and brown people. Because like you said, with those stats that, you know, we make up 5% of the the population in Nebraska, but 20, 29% of the prison pot, that's, that's, that's asinine. You know what I mean? Like ridiculous, but it's, it's exploitation. Well, and it sounds like right from the start, you know, we, it, it starts, you know, early when you have uh when you have like a disproportionate of, of, you know, people able to make money and, and you have so very few people. And again, if, if we say anything incorrect on this, like, please correct us uh, at any point, but it just seems like right from the start, you know, the average white dude in, in what'd you say, Ron and Omaha is making $71,000 per year. The, the household and the, the average, you know, black household is making thirty-one to thirty-two thousand dollars a year. You know, a lot of the time we we try to, sorry, we as in uh, white people just chalk it up to laziness. Like, well, this is the easy explanation because obviously, if I can make this money, then you know, th- then this person can too. And, and 
and when you talk about the system and how it's set up and you talk about, you know, the, the access to schools or, you know, you could go way, way, way back in the day. Um, you could even start with slavery. You could start with the fact that, you know, white people had this, this immense jump start on, on starting to build, to starting to build these, these money legacies and those financially legacies that they can continue giving, you know, money down to, to, uh, you know, their, their descendants and whatnot, and that's being passed down. And, you know, it, black people were, you know, right from the start, they were, they were downtrodden, they were kicked. I mean, they, they were literally enslaved, you know, so many of these white people built their, their money off of, uh, or built their wealth off of, off of free labor, essentially. And so mm-hmm. I, I don't know, that's, that's, that's my tangent, but what, it, any thoughts, anything like that? <laughs> Nah, man, it's, you know, it's very true. But I, I do want to point out, too, that not all black people are impoverished. You right. know, there are there there are black people who actually they actually got the game down really well, you know, when it comes to um, generational wealth and financial literacy. You take, for example, places like Atlanta or D.C., like these are, you know, in the black community, these are like hubs. It's like that's like black people central where. Black businesses are booming and black wealth is thriving, black bank owners, you know, all of that stuff. But, yeah, to your point from the start, it's, you know, it's a disadvantage. So so I, I've got two two hits on that, because I, I don't want to just say that only black people can be impoverished. And, and, and thank you for that correction. I and by no means did I did I mean that whatsoever, because obviously you have white people impoverished. You have uh, Latinx people that are impoverished. You have Asian, you have the whole gamut. Poverty knows no no bounds. It just seems to favor certain groups of people more than than others. So my first question is what makes Atlanta and DC such wildly great hubs for for black businesses? Uh maybe what makes them boom a little bit more? This is this is stuff that's new to me. Is is it and and correct me if I'm wrong and I apologize I didn't Google it before, but Black Wall Street. This is something that I just mm-hmm. now heard of. Yeah. Well to to your first part, Atlanta and DC. So like when you look at when the emancipation happened, those are going to be southern states. And so when slaves or when the when the when the freed slaves started to migrate, they started to migrate into these places and set up shop there. Free slaves had a couple different options. One, they could stay on their plantation and actually work for a living, and which a lot of them did, um, because a lot of them felt lost without their quote unquote master. And their master took them in quote unquote graciously and allowed them to work there and they did the whole thing or they could take off rent land from from a white man usually because a lot of blacks didn't have any property and do it that way so you know when you when they started to migrate that those were two of the biggest places that they migrated to atlanta dc but to your point of black wall street that was down in tulsa oklahoma thriving thriving with black businesses thriving and it's not talked about. It's crazy. Like this is how you can this is how you can see that our culture, us as a people, are oppressed because this was like a it was a crazy event. Like literally, the government and everybody bombed. Like they bombed a whole neighborhood, and nobody talks about that. Like that's not a like that's not a huge event. Like we talk about nine eleven, like it's this big old terrorist attack, but we don't talk about when you know, a bunch of white dudes and white women came in guns blazing with black people with guns protecting their businesses and drilling them all down and bombing them and destroying their destroying their property and then not talking about it at all. You know, it's it's frustrating. It's frustrating. You know, it's it's almost like we're not important. And then we get a month out of the year to say black history. And we talk about MLK and we talk about, Emma, uh, you know, Malcolm X. And we talk about Harriet Tubman and how she freed the slaves and all that stuff. But, you know, which is cool. And they're a part of history. But like, that's not what we're all about. Like, we don't talk about how we how we were the developers of the stoplight, how we created like, like you know, we don't talk about we don't talk about this stuff. No, absolutely. If I'm, you're referencing the like the Tulsa race massacre from like the early 1900s. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's one I learned about like two months ago. First time I'd ever heard about it, and I think some some people said uh, the show Watchmen, which I haven't seen. That's um, what that was. 
okay. portrays portray. I haven't seen it, but I saw a lot of people saying, "Oh yeah, Watchmen was the first time I'd ever heard of this." Yeah, yeah I'm was... I'm showing my I'm showing my ignorance, but yeah, I I saw that I started watching the Watchmen and I was like, "Huh, hmm." Well, and and of course I I like a friggin' idiot attuned it to some sort of fiction because I'm watching the Watchmen, you know, a made up like comic booky kind of thing, and I'm like. I literally right now, I, apparently we're going to have to name this episode. Andy shows his ignorance with Peyton Hogan. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> wow. I am appalled at myself. <laughs> Shocked and appalled at myself. <laughs> so it's, oh it's all right, man. It's yeah. All right. They, they, that whole, that whole opening of that, that show. I mean, it was, it was terrible. I mean, everything going off and flames and fire and holy goodness. And now I know it was real because I was too dumb to uh, check it out. (laughs) We are not editing Uh, any of that out. (laughs) (laughs) It's the one, one thing I've been really interested in Peyton from a, from a research perspective and, trying to find a little bit i still i still want to look into it more is something called social shaming or sometimes people call it the crab effect where when someone someone starts to succeed you know maybe they grew up in a an impoverished community and i don't i'm i don't i don't want to st- stick on this poverty thing but this is just something i'm really interested in someone is in a, a situation of poverty and then maybe they they start to climb out. Maybe they, you know, start taking classes somewhere, they get some education or they start to succeed at uh, some type of skill, business, trade, whatever it might be. And then the people that are close to them start to try to pull them back down to kind of keep them in that same kind of social strata. So I, do you have any experience with that or have you seen it? We've seen the effects of that with this, yeah, the, this crab effect where people just try to try to keep people from succeeding as well. And how prevalent is that in what you've seen? Definitely, man. Um, that's a I think that's a really good point. It can be it can be looked at from, you know, a, a, a multitude of ways. Um, the first one being like, you know, you have somebody, let's say, who who grows up in the hood, you know, goes to college, becomes successful, they move out the hood, now everybody's hating on them. Like, oh, you a sellout, you know, you're not a real like you're not real anymore, yada yada, blah, 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 blah. And it, it can go on, which, you know, in some aspects is true. From that other person, they're like they're trying to escape. They're trying to escape the reality that they were living before. You know what I mean? Like being black in America is a, it's a hard life mentally. Mentally, it's a hard life when we put ourselves through it. Now, where the where the paradox comes in is like, you know, with the crabs in the barrel, we we see ourselves like when you look at it as a crab in a barrel and a crab's climbing to the top, like is is making it really climbing to the top. Like whose standard are we making it by when we move, you know, in Omaha, West Omaha is like where where more where, where most of the money is at. Who's to say that moving out west is really making it? You know, um, W.E.B. Du Bois talks about it in one of his books. Like, one of the worst things for a black man to become educated, because when he becomes educated, he becomes educated and indoctrinated with, go a little bit here, so just follow me, okay? He becomes indoctrinated with what white people want him to become indoctrinated with and not his own culture. And so now he loses himself. He loses that. He loses that connection to his block. He loses that connection to his people. And he begins to like almost like it's like he's here and his people are down here and he's looking down on him like, yo, y'all need to get up here with me instead of, you know, taking that knowledge, bringing it back and empowering his own culture. You know what I mean? Like taking it back to the north side and building up the north side everybody's going out of the north side and moving out west and losing their culture losing their self and you also see that with athletes too you look in the book called 40 million dollar slave and it talks about how from a young age 
they start to train these athletes to lose their connection to what to who they are. They send them on all these circuits. They set them apart from the rest of their community and the rest of their culture so that when it comes to the point that they become famous, they now live in, you know, they're living in L.A., they're living in the suburbs, they're living in all these places and they don't go back to the hood. They don't go back to where they're where they're born at. You know what I mean? They might do turkey drives and all that stuff. And don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to generalize every single athlete and or dismiss what people are actually doing out there but you know for the most part what you see like they their connection from their roots and what they are are cut and lost you know what i mean so the idea of actually being a crab in the barrel and pulling them down it's almost like a it's like a cry for like man like you you're me but you you don't see me as you anymore like you don't acknowledge who you are what you are like we're the same you know what i mean and if Question. So with, with that being said, uh, would you think that Terrence Crawford did a good job of like coming back and building up his business in Omaha in his neighborhood? Yeah. yeah but for his people, man, but okay. for his people, he definitely is, man. He, he's doing an awesome thing with that boxing gym, man. Right you off know, of Jay, Jay Creighton. And so, cause that was, that was going to be one of my points is like, you know, I, I remember it was like eight years ago or I, at some point. And I remember they tried, uh, you know, this, they were trying to put businesses in North Omaha to like build up the community. And essentially what was happening was, you know, a white business owner was coming in and saying, hey, we're going to put these grocery stores in here and we're going to help you. And and overwhelmingly, you know, the community said, no, we don't we don't want that. Like, get that out of our, and of course, then white people are like, we're trying to help you. We're trying, you know, before I go off on another tangent, can you, do you kind of follow what I'm saying? And can you speak to that? Because I I think gentrification, I mean, if you look at any, you look at any, any metropolitan area that was predominantly black close to, close to the downtown area 20, 30 years ago and look at them today and what they're doing. You know what I mean? Like, take, for example, Portland. Yo, Portland's Portland's downtown and surrounding that, like their metropolitan area used to be filled with black people. And now they're pushed out and the prices of everything that like they, they can never come back because they can't afford that. Like they can't afford to live in the areas where they used to live. You look at somewhere like Austin, Texas, exact same thing. Uh, the, I feel like the process is happening here in Omaha. You know what I mean? Like yeah. they're, they're trying, they're trying to curb it with like, and I'm not, I'm not here to talk down on 75 North, you know, because it's, I feel like 75 North is a pretty good project. And they also make opportunities for the most part, at least what I see um, opportunities for individuals in the community to have placement in their homes. But I mean, ultimately what's, what is, what's going to happen and what it's going to do with, with that building up from that downtown area is it's going to just continue to increase prices down in that area and wash everybody out who lives there, push them out farther out West because now they have section eight housing in Northwest Omaha and starting to go into West Omaha. And so that's where everybody will be at. And that metropolitan area will be fully gentrified. And that's, and that's the other thing is that like, and, and, I'm I'm going to kind of go off on here and, and see if this is something that I'm following, but like, you know, kind of like you said, we, we expect everyone in our version of success to, to make a lot of money and to put a bunch away and to, to be okay. And this is our, you know, this is the dream, right? That That's what you're supposed to do. Whereas we're not allowing ourselves and, and, you know, obviously we have work to do, but we're not allowing black people just to be black people or, or, uh, Latin people to be Latin people. And, and maybe, maybe they don't want the same vision with their money that, that we do. And again, I'm not saying every black person is impoverished, but like, sorry, can you speak a little more to the culture of, of what you just, what your community wants and what we're trying to impress upon them? If that's, yeah, that... <laughs> it was followable. No, definitely. Um, I think, I think our culture is, fantasized you know what i mean like as far as just like things in our, our music our food it not fantasized but um what's the word i'm looking for it's uh 
I guess it is. I guess fan. I guess fantasize would be the word. Like, it's it's appreciated when it's not when it's not on us or when it's not done by us. You know what I mean? But when it's done by us, it's it's coined with terms like ghetto, or you know, hood, or you know, all these other things, and kind of like it has a negative connotation to it. And so then, like when it when it comes to being being black and like a professional aspect or in an aspect where you're around predominantly not black people or brown people, you know, is it's looked down on like my dreads, you know what I mean? Like my tattoos, like all of that. Don't nobody want that. But see, the, the thing about me is I don't care. You know what I mean? Like you either going to love me or not. And I know, I know my value and I know my worth. Like I said, my mom, my mom taught me from a young age to think and have an independent mind and know my self-worth for the most part. Like that's not to excuse a lot of the traumas that I had to go through, but um, she instilled that in me. So yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's just, the, that's the answer that I was feeling in my heart. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's kind of where that microaggression of like, Oh wow, you're really well-dressed or you speak really well kind of comes from because it's like, oh, you're conforming to what I think you should be instead of what you want to be. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I love the information so far. I, I'd love to be able to get into the applicable things. Like what can we do to help more? What can we do to, to understand, you know, if, if I'm working with a, I know one of the things I do as a therapist when I'm working with a, with a patient who's black, uh, you know, just whatever. I, I, I constantly try to just shut up and listen, whatever, whatever I can do. Uh, I never want to assume. I know I, I always just want to be with that person where they're at. Is there a, is there a different approach that we could take even with finances or, or I guess what can, what can we do to, to, to help? You know, something, something that was going on in a, in a lot of the after school programs that I saw and even mine in particular is, you know, reaching those youth when they're young and, you know, instilling them with, the importance of finances. First National Bank actually did a, they were doing a really good job with that. Like um, they would come out to schools. I, I think they still do it. I'm not sure. Um, they would come out to schools and help the kids start bank accounts and they were able to bring money there and save up. And then at the end of the year, like they would have all this money and like just being able to reach them when they're young and teach them about the importance of finances. I think that's key, you know, because a lot of my financial patterns now that I'm noticing about myself were learned from when I was young and watching my parents, me and my mom actually have talks about that now. Like, I just remember, I remember my my mom talking to me about like being in debt and like using credit cards when she was in college and running them up and student loans and this and that and the third. And then as soon as I hit 18, I was right on that same path. You know what I mean? And you know, now that I'm getting older and getting control of my finances and, you know, managing my credit, a lot better than back then, like we're able to have conversations about that. And it's just crazy how the cycle continues and like how that thing is like, nobody actually ever says like, take this credit card, go swipe it. You know, it's, this is your lifeline and your blood, like you just do it and it's just done and it's continuously done and done and done, you know? And I, and I think we see that with a lot of us, we're always conditioned with our, with our responses to finances with, you know, a lot of the times we learn from our parents. And, and that's exactly what that is. Let me ask you guys this. When you were young, did you guys get an allowance? Kind of. Like, yeah. it, was, it was very, very little. Uh, but yeah, we, we got a little, I got a little bit of money. I think I've talked yeah. about it before in a previous episode, maybe like three bucks a week or something. But yeah. Yeah, maybe, yeah, 10, 10 bucks every couple of weeks or something like that. And were you, did you guys have to like buy things that you wanted on your own? Like you, you guys weren't just flooded with things that you wanted all the time, maybe? No, it uh, it, it would depend. Uh, if if I wanted something, I usually had to save up for it, but that wasn't always the case. Uh, definitely was not always the case. I was uh, I was probably more spoiled than I remember. I'm just trying to act yeah. up right now. <laughs> yeah, I, I, my bro, I've got two brothers and my parents would be willing to get, you know, shoes for sports or like a baseball bat or a, a musical instruments when we started playing, playing instruments and they would, they would buy those things. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Definitely privileged. Well, what do you what do you feel like the impact was though of the allowance for you? If you had to think about it or you know, if if there had to be an impact, what would you say it was? Of like what was it like getting an allowance or what did that do to us? Well, you know, looking at looking at some of your some of your saving patterns now or you know, even even the value of money now to you. Oh goodness. I hilariously, at least when, and and I've talked about this in previous episodes, but when I got my first job out of college and I was making like decent money, um, I would run my credit card up every month, but I'd pay it off. But the issue was, is I was still making minimum payments on everything else except my credit card, the credit card, I'd always pay off but my student loans, my house, uh, everything. Like I was always making minimum payments. And so I would just say, even in the past, like seven years is when I've really started to develop different money habits. Mm -hmm. But, um, but I guess how the savings or how the allowance affected me. Um, I was always a spender, man. I, I just spent money. I've never had a big savings account. So (laughs) yeah, same. I, my tendency is to want to spend to, to kind of, I think it's a status thing. That's kind of one of the money scripts that I've found that I have is I like to, I like to use what I have as a, as a way to show status, usually with like clothing and shoes and such. And that's, I think that's that I wouldn't say it was caused by the allowance, but when I had money up until I got my first job out of college, um, anything I had, I basically spent it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. So I guess one of the big other themes that I've kind of taken from this is, uh, you know, kind of like we had that really short episode run, Uh, right after the, right after the murder of George Floyd is we just kind of, I think just being quiet and listening, not assuming that you have all the answers, not assuming that we need to impress our financial literacy onto you and your culture. And and that goes with anyone that goes with anyone, just accept people for where they're at. If somebody's saying they're being oppressed, you listen to them. You don't, you don't try to tell them, well, 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 but, but, but just, just listen you know, understand that like, it's acceptable to have dreads. It's acceptable to have tattoos. It's acceptable to, to look different and, and have different money habits and, and what have you. But I, I, I continue with uh, maybe some, maybe some good applicable takeaways. Peyton, what do you think? Yeah, I think, you know, being not black or brown. And if you really want to, if you really want to, you know, be a part of the change and, are genuine about it you know it's it's about learning about the culture you know what is the culture what what are the values of the culture as as far as like a financial financial literacy part it's learning how to apply financial literacy to the culture not wiping out the culture and giving you what our financial literacy is you know and so let's say there are things that that are value like clothes and shoes and things like that well, how can you how can you obtain these clothes and shoes and still be financially literate? Because that's possible. You know, it's completely possible. Oh, yeah. Or, you know, or or how can you how can you begin to create your own clothing and shoe brand so that you now you now are you now are a part of of the the capital system that is generating revenue and in, in providing products. Mm-hmm. Um you know, those are some of the big things that 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 really is how, you know, it's just not not discounting what the culture is. And that's what a lot of people do. Like they'll say at times we feel it, it, it almost feels like people try to make us feel like what we what we have or what we think or what we believe is wrong. It's not right. You know, and we need to change it. And, and that's where the disconnect comes. That's where, you know, the connection can't be made between between you know other communities in the black and brown community right and and that goes uh that even goes back to the point of you know coffee shaming just just again meeting people where they're at what do you want to see your money do for you what do you want your money to do for you on a daily weekly monthly yearly and and you know lifetime basis you know if if you want you know every known pair of asic shoe Peyton, <laughs> Peyton has a Peyton has a beautiful assortment of Asics shoes. Oh, I'd love um, to yo, see that. <laughs> yo, I haven't I haven't bought a pair of Asics though in like 
two years. Whoa! I haven't bought a pair yeah. of Asics in four years, and I use them for gonna, running, Peyton. <laughs> I'm gonna make a, a very brief tangent here, but when I was a senior in high school, the DS Trainer Elevens Asics yeah. was like my favorite shoe that I've ever had, and I would do anything to have them again. I still I still have them, but I can't wear them because they're so worn out in my feet. <laughs> Kill me. Are those the ones, I still are those have the ones that just, have like I wish the, I could have a the new insole pair. that's about this thick? Uh yeah, they don't they don't have a ton. Yeah, they're not super cushioned. Uh they they were like red and orange ones. Well, yeah, they did, I they did to... have a thick sole, but then Ron actually, you know, ran in them. Ran in them, Peyton. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna look yeah. them up right now. Not that anyone can see this, but um <laughs> Well, hey, uh, I don't, I don't have much more. I super appreciate the conversation, dude. I really do. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for, and and thank you even for me for the, you know, the past multiple years that you've helped educate me and helped uh, inform me in such a very kind and and peaceful way when when you know in my ignorance and and we could go on a whole new tangent on like what does it mean to be peaceful and what justifies whatever. I have plenty of opinions about that i know you and i have talked about that when i think when you finally try so dang hard in your life and you know you continue and continue and continue to be downtrodden like you have nothing to do but but to react in a way i mean the civil war was a result of people being fed up with being treated like garbage you know i like anyway it's a whole <laughs> different uh, conversation for another t- what? Sorry. I, I, I do want to end with this, you know, just with 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 everything that's going on now and, you know, the climate that we live in. And like, this is nothing new. Like, this is nothing new at all. This is just a new phase of it. Like, this stuff has been going on since we've been here. Just it looks different every couple of decades. But if you know, if people who are not black and brown want to see something happen, no, regardless of what side they're on, you know what I mean? I think the biggest thing that needs to happen is people just got to shut up. People got to listen. People have to acknowledge the reason that people are doing the things that they're doing now or feeling the ways that they're feeling now. They have to acknowledge that, like, because people feel certain ways for reasons like you don't just feel a certain way. Like, it doesn't just happen like that. And then, like, a real conversation has to happen, like, a real one, a real, not not one where I'm trying to tell you about my, like, my point of view and mine is better than yours, but one of, like, all right, how do we grow from here? You know, like, that's the only way that something like this with everything that's going on is fixed or solved. But, yeah, just, just wanted to throw that little two cent in there. I appreciate it. I think it was more yeah. like a buck fifty, but whatever. <laughs> no, run. Uh, hey, I've got well, I've got one more for you. I just want. I would just be interested if you have any authors or books or um, films or something like a uh, top three or whatever. Whatever you want uh, that comes to mind. I got you. Give me just a second. I have a. I got a whole. <laughs> got a whole list. So a really good one, um, Up From Slavery by Booker T. Washington. Great book, great book. Booker T. Washington, he was a former slave who founded the Tuskegee Institute. Like, he did tremendous things, but he actually feuded with W.E. Du Bois, who I talked about earlier, which his books, he has a lot of books, but one that is profound is Souls of Black Folk. It's a really good book. And him and Booker T. Washington's book, they kind of collide, but they have some they have some places where they are very similar. They were like on the opposite spectrums of how black people should conduct themselves in post-slavery times. Like Booker T. was more like, don't don't go against the grain, create value, create value in 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 white society and white society will value you. Like if you bring something to the table, like Booker T. did this, like he created this whole community where um, he he started like masonry and the the town that he was living in they needed bricks they needed bricks and so he created value in that town and then everybody there was like yo Booker T's this really good dude and then he creates this school there and they're like oh we just love Booker T whereas W E Du Bois is like nah we need 
political change. Like you need to acknowledge our rights politically. Like we're not going to subdue who we are. Now there's elements in both of that, both of their, both of their um, philosophies that are very true. And I would be surprised to see what could happen if both of them were combined and actually executed as opposed to them being on opposite spectrums like this. Um, so both of those books, there's also a book called Miseducation of the Negro by Carter G. Woodson, profound book, very profound book. You should check it out. Eight Years in Power by Nishi Coates. I mean, I could I could go on and on and on about books that that could, you know, enlighten and give other perspectives of, you know, just some of the mental and physical oppression that as a black person, we we have been dealing with for hundreds of years in the United States. But one last one, one last one that I encourage a lot of people to read is The Destruction of Black Civilization by Chancellor Williams. And this book gives a lot of history that people probably have never even heard of. This is pre-America. This is pre like most of the civilizations in the world that we know about where black people actually thrived and it talks about like what what we came from and what our values were so if there are any listeners out there who who wanted to know what life was like for us when our level of consciousness was on a, a much higher level destruction of the black, black civilization is one that you should really check out and it's all historically um back well Peyton, thank you so much for coming on, man. Uh, you're a close friend of mine, and and I hope uh, our listeners got something out of this. If you want to learn more, you can always reach out to us. Please do moneyinthemind at gmail.com. If you like the episode, uh, you listen to it on the Overcast app, click a little star next to it. Uh, if you like the show or whatever, give us some feedback. You know, Head up to Apple Podcasts and give us a review if you do not mind. Uh, subscribe to the show. And uh, yeah, if you have any anything else, reach out to us. And uh, Peyton, again, thank you so much for coming on today. No problem. Thank you.